All right. We are in John 5, 1 through 18. This is our second week in John 5, 1 through 18. And let's just start with reading it. You know, we like to stand when we read God's Word in this part of the service. It's a way for us to worship. Pay attention as we hear. John 5, 1 through 18. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there was, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, picked up his mat, and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to, him, said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, be seated. Well, we looked at this story last week, and we're looking at it again this week, uh, part one and two. And last week, we learned that um, Really, the story is a story about Jesus um, taking a stand, marking himself off against something we can call folk religion. Now, this is a story about Jesus versus folk religion. Last week, um, clever sermon titles, Jesus versus folk religion, part one. This week, Jesus versus folk religion, part two. Uh, folk religion, what is that? What do we mean when we talk about folk religion? Well. 
folk religion is any kind of religious, spiritual, uh, superstitious, any kind of belief or practice or ideology that's religious in nature that does not come from official accredited channels. It does not arise out of uh, official sources, but rather it originates and develops uh, out of the folk tales, the hopes, the dreams, the stories, even the collective trauma of, of communities. So it's not, it's not religion that comes from on high, it's religion that comes from among us, among people. And for those of us who subscribe to the message of John's Gospel, who believe that Jesus himself is the Word of God, Jesus himself is God's revelation, Jesus himself is the light and the life of God for us. If you subscribe to that truth, as I do, then what that means is Jesus himself is the official source. Jesus is accredited religion. So any kind of religious or spiritual practice uh, that does not come from him, that does not center around him, that is not ultimately about him, has to come from somewhere else. And really the only other source is us. So when we talk about folk religion, talking about the religion of the people, Religion of our own making. Human-made spirituality. And we saw last week as we looked at the story that this man at the pool had spent years of his life subscribing to a kind of folk religion. This healing pool. And there was this folk tale about an angel coming down to stir the waters. The first one in was a competition. Um, folk religion very often is competitive. The first one in gets healed, but he couldn't do it. He was most likely, textual scholars tell us the way that this is written in the original language, probably it looks like he was paralyzed or something, some kind of disability to that degree. There's, this guy doesn't have a chance. But year after year, he's there wasting away, hoping and dreaming, maybe he can do the thing to get the blessing. And he was there at the pool, this relic of folk religion, of his community. And it led to great despair, hopelessness for him. We see this in the way he talks to Jesus. I have no one to help me. But as we saw last week, Jesus shows up and he speaks into this man's life. The Word, Jesus the Word. The, the Word of God cuts through the noise of communal spirituality. Jesus speaks life to him. Get up, pick up your mat, walk. And this man is healed. Jesus demonstrates his power. And then Jesus does what no folk religion could ever do. Stop sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Jesus speaks grace and truth into the man's life. We saw that last week. Talked all about how folk religion is a steel trap. Talked all about how many of us have been wasting away it. Various healing pools. Um, some areas of our life. Maybe for years. And together we try to look to Jesus to hear his voice. 
talked about folk religions that are common among us, how they often, kind of like this one, mix with true religion. They often use the vocabulary of the real thing. Uh, and we talked about those around us, folk religion like Christian nationalism, this idea that the United States somehow has God's special favor and is God's special agent in the world and that to love God is to love our country in a particular way that's wrapped up with our hope for salvation. Folk religion. We talked about uh, sort of this moralistic idea that yes, but basically what we need to do is we need to believe in God and be good people and if you believe in God and you be good people that's really what God wants. That's folk religion. You can believe in God and be good people all day long. Never climb out of your own mess. We talked about various ways we believe prosperity gospels. If you do the thing, you will gain the blessing. Folk religion. You can never do enough. And Jesus has answered these things. We saw that last week, looking at this guy. This week, today, I want to look at the other. There's three main character figures in the story. Jesus, the guy at the pool, and then these religious leaders. This week I'm going to look at these religious leaders. What can we learn from looking at them? What's going on there? And I'm convinced, and I want to show you, that we look at these religious leaders, we see uh, folk religion going on in a different way. Folk religion that, that maybe would be much more dangerous for people like us. Folk religion that looks very much like orthodoxy. So I want to look at this and how is Jesus confronting these religious leaders? What's going on with them? Where is Jesus versus folk religion? Where, where is that happening here? And in turn, hopefully, the light of Christ turns on us and our darkness will not overcome that light. He'll call us out. We can repent and believe and be set free as well. Okay, so let's look at these at these people. The, the NIV text, which is what we read, calls them the Jewish leaders. Um, if you have, uh, I think it's the King James or New King James, or I think it's the older ESV, if I'm wrong, it refers to them as the Jews. Um, some translations refer to them as the Judeans. Let's talk about the term. Who are these people and why is it translated in different ways and what's going on here? Okay, here's the thing. The Greek word is a Greek word that a literal translation, when it says, let's see, when it says, what, what verse is it? It says that uh, verse 9, the day on which this took place was the Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, this is Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Uh, these people, this group, we have seen in John's Gospel, they're introduced in chapter 2, remember they come, ask John the Baptist a bunch of questions, and now we're seeing them again. And throughout the Gospel, we will see them standing off against Jesus, becoming Jesus' main opponents. Now, in older translations like the King James, it's very often translated the Jews. The Greek word, I don't, can't pronounce it very well, but the, the Greek word, Eudean, um, I think that's how you pronounce it, can be translated the Jews, but the actual literal wooden one-for-one -one translation would be Judean. And um, that's really important for us to recognize. 
for years and for generations after the English Bible came out. John's Gospel was used to endorse anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish ideology. Because if this term is translated the Jews, and we read John's Gospel, we just read it in a vacuum, it kind of looks like John's Gospel is a story about Jesus versus the Jews. And the Jews are the bad guys, and the Jews crucified Jesus, and the Jews are the constant thorn in Jesus' side. And you know, that's not actually what the Gospel teaches us. So we need to be really careful. Technically, it can be translated the Jews, but as John writes here, he's not referring to the Jewish people as a whole. In fact, Jesus himself is Jewish. In fact, John, who wrote this, is Jewish. So this isn't just the Jews. And in the same way, we really need to be careful, even with the way the NIV translates this, the Jewish leaders. We need to be careful with that as well. Um, this wasn't every leader in the Jewish community that was, this is talking about here. Uh, Jesus himself was a Jewish leader. And we also need to be careful with the term religious leaders. Jesus himself was a religious leader. So who is this group? When John, the Gospel writer, uses this Eudean word in this story, he is referring to the Jerusalem-based religious establishment. The Jerusalem-based uh, religious leaders. So we have Pharisees, we have Sadducees, we have temple officers. This is the accredited, visible leaders of the Jerusalem-based Jewish religious system. That's who he's talking about. Okay? So these people see this man carrying his mat, and they react. They respond. What do they do? How can we describe their reaction to what they see? Well, let's take a look. Verse 9 and 10. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day in which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders, the Judean religious establishment, uh, establishment said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Well, first we see that these folks, they're concerned with this apparent Sabbath violation. They're concerned with the fact that this guy's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. They're not concerned uh, with the actual healing. They're not concerned with the actual healing of this. Someone is carrying their mat, and they're really concerned about that. They're not concerned about the fact that this is a formerly paralyzed man who is now walking around. Do you see that? Um, when they see this man carrying his mat, they, they see a walking religious problem. They see a religious issue, a religious violation. They don't see a human being who has been healed. They don't see a miracle that has taken place. They don't see a person. It's like they're blind to the humanity of this healed man. What are you doing carrying your mat? You kind of want to walk in and say, everybody stop. Wait, does anybody else see the fact that this guy is carrying his mat? Hello? They missed that. This is a Sabbath violation. 
It's like they dehumanize. It's like they dehumanize those who work. They don't even humanize them in the first place. They just see a religious problem. It's just like we see in these religious leaders, leaders of the religious establishment in this place, a kind of spiritual confusion. They're confused about what's really important here. They've taken something that is less important and made it ultimate. And they've taken something that is very important, human being walking around who uh, 10 minutes ago couldn't walk around, and ignored it. This is backwards. This is upside down. This is spiritual confusion exemplified. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 11. It says that the man replied. He said, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Here again, they're concerned that Jesus led the man to break the Sabbath in their eyes. They're concerned that Jesus told him to pick up his mat and walk around with him on the Sabbath. They are not concerned with the fact that Jesus had the power to heal. You see that? They don't say, who is this person that caused your formerly paralyzed legs to work? No. Who is this person that told you to pick up your mat and start walking around? It's like they're blind not just to the humanity of this person, they're also blind to the goodness and power of Jesus. This man had become a religious problem, and Jesus had become a religious perpetrator. He had no power in their eyes. He had no goodness in their eyes. He was a suspect. They were unable to see the work of God in this moment. They were unable to see the miracle. This is spiritual deadness. They're not just confused. They're like dead to spiritual realities. It's, it's like they don't even exist. Uh, this is a little grotesque, but I want to hammer this home with spiritual deadness. Like somebody is dead, like you can walk up to them and you can talk to them and you can wave your hand in front of their eyes and you can they're not going to see you. They're not going to respond to you. Or if somebody says metaphorically, you're dead to me, what does that mean? That means no matter what you do, no matter how much you want to relate to me, you're out. That's what's going on here. Verse 16, it says, um, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said, my father has always worked this day, and I too am working. Now for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Here we see that they're not just confused, they're not just simply uh, ignorant or, or, or blind to Jesus' goodness. They have lost the ability to tell the difference between good and evil. Jesus, who is the good guy here, they think is the bad guy. And themselves, they're the ones who are acting as the bad guys. They think they're the good guys. They, they have lost the ability to discern good and evil. 
They want to, in order to preserve what they think is preserving, out of their zeal for the fourth commandment, which is keeping the Sabbath, they want to break the sixth commandment, which is thou shalt not kill. Do you see this? This is, they, they have lost the ability. This is, this is spiritual darkness exemplified. I'm reminded of, uh, in the book Paralandra by C.S. Lewis, he talks about, um, how true evil is not uh, the is not the antithesis of good. True evil is not setting itself against good. True true evil at, at its worst is just being indifferent towards good. It's just ignoring the line between good and evil. That's what we see here. So here in these this religious establishment, we see people who are confused. It's like they're dead to what's actually going on. And they become an example, an exemplary picture of darkness. Now, these folks, passionate and zealous for religion, these folks are passionate and zealous for established religion. This is the Jerusalem-based religious establishment. For the official channels through which religion is supposed to come down. But we see that the fruit of their religion, the fruit of their faith, the fruit of their practice is confusion, deadness, and darkness. What they're doing might look official. Some of them might wear the uniform. Some of them might have the badge of official ordination. Some of them might have the followers. Some of them might have the degrees. But this is folk religion. How do we know? We know by its fruits. Because it's a steel trap just like the thing we saw at the pool. What they're hoping for, we see in their actions that they're hoping for the Sabbath-keeping thing, but their hope is resulting in something that is just nasty. It dehumanizes other people. It's unable to see good in the world. It misses God's supernatural activity. The most striking thing about the folk religion of this group, I think, is not how bad its fruits are. Folk religion always has bad fruit. But it's, the, it's who they are. It's the fact that they themselves are the religious establishment of the people of God, of the real people of God. In this time and place, the Jews. Further, where did they get their folk religion? Where did they get their ideals? Where did they get their passion? Where did they get these rules about what somebody should or shouldn't do on the seventh day? Here it is, the most striking thing of all of this. They got it from the Bible. Here we see the established people of God 
taken from the established written word of God. A spiritual belief and practice that leads to confusion, that leads to darkness, and that results in deadness. These Judeans got their folk religion from the Bible. That's shocking. How does this work? We should be terrified when we read this. Because we're Bible people. We're established Christian religion people. We're Presbyterians. We have all kinds of accreditation. All kinds of Bible. This is Oregon. This is Bible church country. We meet at a Bible college. This is terrifying. Here we see in the Bible that you can be part of God's people, at least if that's what it looks like by all visible judgment, you can be a person of the Bible, of the Scriptures. And you can be spiritually confused, spiritually dead, and a peddler of darkness. Because the religion that you hold to doesn't really come from God. It comes from somewhere else. Does that scare you? It scares me. So how, how does this work? Well, let's take a minute. Let's look at this Sabbath thing. We read earlier Deuteronomy 6. There's two places in the Bible where we see the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 6. Exodus 20 was the first time God gave it to the people. Deuteronomy 6 was when Moses reviewed it to the people before they went into the land. The Deuteronomy 6 passage is written there in your worship guide. And we read it, and it's clear. Don't work on the seventh day. Work for six days. On the seventh day, cease from your labor. Keep it holy. This is a day dedicated to God. You don't work. Don't let your family work. Don't let the people who work for you work. Don't let your cattle and your livestock work. Nobody works on day seven. And we can read in the Pentateuch about how serious this was. I'm reminded of a story in the book of Numbers uh, where um, there was a guy who went out and started... Maybe you've heard the story. There was a guy who was a Sabbath day. Everybody's just laying around. It's quiet. Nobody's doing anything because... Sabbath is a fairly new law. Everybody's still really excited about it. Everybody's laying around on the Sabbath day, and this dude gets up, and he starts collecting firewood. And they tell him to stop, and he won't do it. And it says he does it obstinately. He's determined obstinately to collect firewood on the Sabbath. And the people are confused. And they go to Moses and Aaron, and Moses and Aaron go to God, and they say, what do we do? Here's a guy that refuses to stop working on the Sabbath. In fact, look at him. He's carrying firewood around. You know what God tells him? God says, take him out of the camp and stone him. That's how serious this Sabbath rule was for the Jewish people. This was life or death. Don't work. Remember the guy carrying around firewood? Death penalty. Don't do it. So, in a way, I can see why these Jerusalem-based religious leaders would be like, hey dude, stop carrying something around. 
Like, I, I get that. That kind of makes sense to me. We, we also read this passage in Jeremiah 17 earlier in the service. The book of Jeremiah is all about how the people of God insisted on folk religion over worshiping the true God. That's what the whole book of Jeremiah is about. And as a result, uh, God gave them over to their folk religion. And, and Jeremiah the prophet, we, we see it through his eyes. He's in Jerusalem and God is giving the city over uh, to the Babylonians. And so much of the book is Jeremiah pleading with God for the city, for himself. We call him the weeping prophet. He's weeping about the whole thing. Well, in chapter 17, Jeremiah is having this back and forth conversation with God about what's going on. And he had just finished, there's this beautiful section in the first part of 17 where Jeremiah is, is pledging his loyalty, pledging his heart to God. He's saying, Lord, I am with you. I am dedicated to you. And, and God responds to Jeremiah in such an interesting way. And that's what we read. God speaks to Jeremiah and he, he uses this image of people carrying the load in and out of the gates of the city on the Sabbath day as a symbol, as a way to describe the hard-hearted disobedience of the people. And God basically tells Jeremiah, look, as long as these people continue carrying things in and out of the gates of the city on the Sabbath, this exile is going to continue. What God is do was doing in that passage is he was using that carrying some things around on the Sabbath as a, as a symbol. Look, these people are trusting in themselves more than they trust in me. They're leaning on the commerce and activity of the city more than they're leaning on my provision. They're looking to their own hopes and dreams and stories for salvation. They're not looking to me. Look, they continue. Remember the story of the guy with the firewood? They continue carrying their loads in and out of the gates of the city. And then there's even this part where God says that if people would stop doing that, they'd see that David's line return to the throne. People would stop doing that. They, they would see the Messiah come and renew the city. What if they don't? That's all death and destruction. Kind of like the guy with the firewood. So these religious leaders, these Bible scholars, these pastors and teachers, these good church members in Jerusalem, see this guy carrying around this load, and they remember their Bible verses. They remember the do's and don'ts. They remember the rules. And then they remember how their communities, how their families, how their moms and dads and aunts and uncles and how their friends and how their rabbis, how their pastors have told these stories years and years and years and years and years. And they see this guy, this human being, carrying his mat. And they are no longer able to see him as human. All they can see is a Sabbath violation. Somebody carrying a load. 
They had taken the letter of the law. They had taken the do's and don'ts. They had taken the, if you do this, then you will get this. And they had stacked them all up into this kind of religion that went like this. If you behave this way, things are good. If you don't behave this way, things are bad. So you better do this. And in the end, they were completely backwards, upside down and dead. Do you see it? So Jesus steps in. They find Jesus. He starts talking to them. And he had already confronted the folk religion of the guy at the pool by healing him, by being the word. He speaks into the situation. And now we see Jesus confront these folks as well. But it's more subtle. It's harder to see. He says to them, My father is always at work to this very day. And I too am working. He says they tried to call more to kill him. And they understood him to be saying that he was calling God's father, making himself equal with God. Talk about that second part last week. First century Jewish culture, for Jesus to call God his personal father was a way of saying that he thought God was his equal. That might sound strange to our ears, but we need to recognize that that's what they heard. Okay, yeah, that, that would be offensive, especially to them. Um, but what's this other part? Jesus says, my father is always working and I too am working. What's Jesus saying there? Well, the Sabbath was a law that God gave to his people. It's not a law that God gave to himself. In God's economy, at this time, there is only one person who is allowed to work on the Sabbath. And it's God himself. God is free to work. In fact, God has always been working on the Sabbath. We read in Genesis, it says, on the seventh day, God rested. Days one through six, God does stuff, and then there's morning, and there's evening, and then we have the next day. And then we get on the seventh day, God rested, and there is no end after that. There's no morning or evening. So all throughout history, God has been resting. Yet he's been working. How is that possible? Because he's God. So he tells the people to rest. Don't work. He himself will provide for them. You were slaves in Egypt. Now you rest. I will provide for you. I'm a better master than Pharaoh. So in biblical Sabbath, nobody works except God. Jesus here says, my father is working. And they're like, are you saying God is your equal? And it's like he's going, yeah, but let me get to the other point. Because my father is working, I too am working. Now that would have been radically offensive. Jesus wasn't just saying that God was his equal. Jesus was saying that his action was God's action. His authority is God's authority. His person is God's person. Let me put it this way. These folks were so tied up with their Bibles so tied up with their traditions, so tied up with their church, that they had gotten to a place of dehumanizing darkness. And the way Jesus confronted that was not by saying, stop reading your Bible. 
was not by saying, get away from your church. Was not by saying, deconstruct from your religion. No. Jesus' way of confronting that was by stepping into the situation and saying, here I am, look at me, pay attention to my person. I am God. That was his way of confronting it. Here is the point. Any kind of spiritual belief or practice that does not come down from official channels is folk religion. And folk religion is a steel trap. It will confuse you, it will darken your life, and it will lead to death. The only official channel is the Word of God, is the light of God, is the life of God. And that comes to us through Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Yes, this is God's written word, but he is the living word. So if we read this, but in every single passage, every single page, every single law, every single word, every single story, if we do not by faith, with our brains and with our hearts, see Jesus at the center of it. Interpret it through Jesus as our lens. See Jesus as the meaning and Jesus as the point. If we're not reading the Bible through Jesus, then we are reading something that will lead you to confusion, darkness, and death. Folks, there are reasons why we have places in the world even our own city, where we have had Bible people, generation after generation, bearing witness to this book. But it's made no difference in the community. Because in every generation, just like here, we have Bible people who are just as lost as pagan healing pool people. This book, these traditions, will never, ever save you. Only the thing, the person that this book is supposed to bear witness to, the person that these traditions bear witness to, this table bears witness to, only he can save you. There's only two kinds of spirituality. There's only two kinds of religion. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, and everything else. And the scary thing is, we can do church, we can do Bible, we can do Presbyterianism, we can do Oregon Bible Church, all day long and miss. Some of you have been in communities and suffered long in communities that had such a high view of scripture, such a high view of tradition, that Jesus, his love, his mercy, his person is nowhere to be found. Some of you have been dehumanized. Some of you have been the dehumanizer. I have been both. Jesus stands before us today and every single day until he comes in glory and in judgment. 
and invites us to see him. Folks, we want to get together and talk about our doctrines, talk about our rules, talk about our polity, talk about our traditions, even talk about our experiences. All that stuff is only, only clarifying, life-giving, and illuminating. Jesus is the end of all of those stories. So today, like it says in Hebrews, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. People of God, hope prayers, brothers and sisters, friends, kids. Who are you following? Who are you listening to? Where is your hope? Jesus is Jesus himself, his person. That's the only hope. Like Moses said to the people in Deuteronomy, after he gave the Ten Commandments, he said, Today I set before you life and death. I set before you blessing and cursing. You choose which one. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, I myself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Jesus says, Today, my Father is always at work, and I am at work. He gives up work here.